Learning and mastering hand lettering can be incredibly overwhelming and frustrating. However, a proven framework can help you see real progress, populate your portfolio with standard work, attract paid assignments, and become your source of income. And you don't need fancy equipment and millions of tools to do it. What you do need is the right guidance and like-minded people to keep you accountable along the way. Thankfully, this lettering masterclass is designed to provide you with that. In case we haven't met, my name is Martina Flor. I'm an award-winning lettering artist, author of the book, The Golden Secrets of Lettering, educator and private coach to several lettering artists that are thriving with their art. During this session, I will be sharing best practices for mastering the art of hand lettering. Elias Prado, our senior designer and co-instructor, will also be joining forces and together we will help you cut through the noise and provide you with the frameworks that you can start applying in your practice today and see results. At the end of the masterclass, I will be announcing the relaunch of the lettering seminar as a community powered course. And you will get an open window to some of that training during this session and a special deal for the program in case you would like to go deeper and invest in your career as a lettering artist. During this training, you will find the one thing you need to gain momentum and finally go from amateur to pro, the mistakes that all aspiring lettering artists need to avoid if seeing real progress in your work is what you want, the one thing that differentiates successful lettering artists from the rest of mortals and that you can have too, and the one thing that is stunting your growth and that you will find by joining this masterclass. Besides this, I will show you how to put your foot in the door as a professional lettering artist and turn your passion into your livelihood. Don't miss out on this free masterclass with me and a chance to get into the lettering seminar, our community power program early and with a special deal. Sign up below. See you in the training. And uh, yeah. I thought this, this, this is terrific. I was like, yeah, let me, let me help, you know? Um, and so it's a great story. And then he, then he, and he's like, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm, you know, then he tells me oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an old school graffiti writer. And I find out he's just this legend and I'm like, that just made the story cooler because then we're, we're like texting and messaging and stuff and, um, you know, sharing pictures of all this, you know, his graffiti that he was writing back in the day. And, um, and, uh, it, it was just, it was a great experience. And so those are the things, you know, um, as far as, you know, the work, work coming in. I mean, I do all my professional stuff, um, through the studio, but, um, I look at those opportunities as, as, you know, ways to connect with people, to be involved with these projects, these, you know, mm. that I find are going to be fun or um, help someone out. And, um, but I look at them also as opportunities to practice in a sense. I, yeah. I am going to draw letters anyway. Yeah. I, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and, and I love what you say. That Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Studio. I'm your host, Martina Flor, and in this interview style episode, I have honest conversations with artists, designers, and creatives to uncover their story and the specific tactics they use to build a successful career around their skills and the work they love doing. Today, I'll be having a conversation with Ken Barber. Ken is a lettering artist, type designer, author, and educator, 
And for over 30 years, he has made distinctive logos for global brands and created dozens of fonts. He blames his obsession with letter forms on Don Martin's comics, Santa Cruz skateboard graphics, and speed metal logos. Kenwork has been featured in a few fancy museums, including the Cooper Hubit National Design Museum and the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation. He's an instructor at, Cop at Cooper Union in New York City and teaches online lettering workshops with his wife, Lynn, to students around the globe. Currently, he's the type director and studio letterer at House Industries. Ken has written several books on design, including his award-winning lettering manual published in 2020. This conversation with Ken was full of takeaways. Ken shared wise insight learned throughout his career of over 30 years making and teaching lettering. Things like having mentors, putting your foot in the door as a lettering artist, developing your own voice and navigating the ups and downs of a career. Ken spoke openly about the things that he did to become a master in his craft and go from amateur to pro. And the good news is that these are all actionable steps that you can follow yourself to do that as well. As a personal note, I've been wanting to interview Ken since day one because I know how much value and insights he has to share. Now, after almost 100 podcast episodes under my belt, I dare to have him on the show and conduct this interview, which I dearly share with you today. Enjoy this conversation with Ken Barber. Hello, Ken. How are you doing today? Thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. So, Ken, what I normally do when starting the podcast is like, I like to start with a question that will open uh, different venues of conversation for us. We have, as I told, told you before, we started the podcast. We have so many topics that we will touch on today. Your career, your teaching, your books. But first, I want to start with your work and ask you, how do you master a skill? Let's say that I want to, I'm starting right now. Like I want to start mastering the skill of lettering. What would be the steps or some of the things that I could do to start doing so? What would you recommend someone that is starting new in this, um, in this industry and specifically to get better at doing lettering? Um, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've been asked this question so many times. And I always tell myself that I'm, I'm, I'm going to work on an answer that just like gets right to the heart of it, just succinctly covers everything, explains it all, no problems. Mm. Um, I think the first thing I would say is, is to, for a student especially, mm. to try to identify your, your interests and your abilities and see where they align. And, and, mm. and if you're particularly interested in lettering, <clears throat> Um, you're probably you're probably looking at a lot of lettering. You're um, you're you're doing a lot of drawing, and so practice is is I think it's probably obvious to most people that that's going to be clearly an enormous part of of the mm -hmm. process. Um, educating yourself is is extremely important, and there's so many resources available today. When I began, I started my career professionally. Uh, in the early to mid 1990s, and there were definitely resources available. Uh, there were books on lettering. In fact, uh, the, the the books on lettering that I that are my continue to be my favorites um, by people like Tommy Thompson and Mortimer Leach. Uh, they were they were accessible, but I also entered lettering at a time when desktop publishing uh, was becoming a thing. Everyone was. Mm -hmm 
really um, just completely uh, engrossed in just working with digital topography and hmm. and the ease, the convenience, uh, uh, the things that you could do with that, and rightly so. So I had an interest in that as well, but um, I realized that if I also had an interest in lettering, I wasn't quite sure what it was. I knew I wanted to draw letters, so I would give students today the same advice that I that I followed. I, I, I wasn't necessarily given that advice, but what I did was I just tried to learn as much as I could from the from the resources that I had. Mm. I think comparatively, my resources were limited, um, mm. and I wonder. I wonder if students today, and, and maybe you have some insight onto this or into this, do students today feel perhaps even a little, maybe overwhelmed by the mm. amount of resources now? Because you can go onto these uh, uh, platforms, you pay, you know, Skillshare, whatever it may be, um, loads of information out there. Mm. Um, I teach workshops, you're a teacher. There, there are so many avenues uh, so many uh, ways that you can uh, that you can pursue lettering today and I'm I wonder if it's a bit overwhelming but I think mm. the fact remains that uh, you you need to educate yourself about it mm. so if you have someone you trust that maybe knows a little bit more than you do um, ask them for a little bit of direction that's typically the way that it happens I, I'm a mm. I'm a big advocate of of having teachers mm. I I just um I attended um, Tyler School of Art, and I, mm. I received a, a degree in graphic design, um, and that's what I thought I was going to do. At the time, my teachers didn't really have a, a deep knowledge of lettering. They didn't really know how to direct me. I was also interested in illustration and sort of traditional graphic design, but finding someone who can help at the very least steer you a little bit down the path that you want to pursue is mm. enormous. And for me, I had to find those people. Um, mm. And, and I, I suspect that's, that's what people are doing now. Um, you know, mm. my, my students, um, uh, if they have a, have a class with me, they'll, they'll return. Um, or someone may tell them, Hey, you should, you know, you should check out uh, this instructor or, or, um, or this class. So mm -hmm. I, I would say that you have to you have to find those people that you trust either to lead you in that direction or that could potentially be your instructors. For me, it was tracking. I mean, I guess we would call it stalking today um, <laughs> that I found out about these people. And I'm like, how do I get in, how do I get in touch with them? And and I did exactly the same thing. I, you know, I had um, I had an employer who sort of new folks at the Type Directors Club, which is an organization in New York City. Um, and it, uh, they're, they're global, um, mm. but uh, they put me in touch with someone who put me in touch with someone else, you know, and suddenly I'm cold calling, you know, people like Ed <laughs> Benguet, and, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm interested in this lettering thing. And I don't know if he was just bored or, uh, yeah, I don't know. He, uh, he was super helpful and, and, um, he mm. just shared with me his experience, um, uh, stories about his life and, um, it was, it was fantastic. So I would, I would definitely, uh, look to find those people who can, who can steer you in, in the, in the right direction. I, I think that's invaluable. Uh, you can teach yourself and, and, Certainly, people do, and they become very skilled. Um, mm. But uh, I mean, you you have experience at KVK, um, yeah. 
And, and I'm sure, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do, do, do you find that having those mentors was mm. irreplaceable? I mean, it, it, it was for me. It is. It continues to be for me. But I'm curious, what, yeah. you, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I don't know if I ever told you this, uh, but you were the first person that helped me put it, a name tag on what I wanted to do. And, you know, when I was enrolled in this program in the KBK, which was, a, for those that don't know, it's a type design program in the Netherlands. You came in to taught a, a lettering workshop. We had a two days workshop with you. And I remember that this experience was pivotal for me, not only for the things that I learned and like the techniques that I learned from you, but also because for the first time I said, well, I want to do what he does. I love this line of work. And this is, you know, I know, I know that up until that point, I had, you know, I had all these teachers available for me and they, I was learning from some of the best in the industry, but still there was something off between what they were doing professionally and what I imagine myself doing. I couldn't imagine myself in their uh, seats. And when you came in to teach that workshop for me, it was like, well, I want to be like Ken. And I think this was really important for me because of course, I, then I, I drew my own path. Uh, but I think that we all need to have some sort of model. I think what, what you're talking about here is some sort of model that you look up to. And, um, and if you can have access to the, these people, you know, these people that are doing that thing that you want to do and you can uh, pick their heads and, and get some of the insights on how they got there where, where they are right now, then it's, it's invaluable, you know? And I feel that of course, afterwards you will go ahead and, and carve your own path, but having that model, being able to say like, well, this is the direction in which I want to go. I think that is, that is really important. And I think that that is also what happened to you. Um, you know, cold calling, you mentioned Ed, Ed ben, Benjet, Benjet, how do you Benga. pronounce this? Benjet. Yes. Um, and I want to ask you, I wanted to really ask you about this. Who, who were these people for you? So Ed was one of them. Um, were there other people that you, you were closely in touch with, which help you carve your path into lettering? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> uh, to get back to your point about having that person who you see maybe doing the work that you'd like to do is, is really important. And I think that's how I would describe it as well. Um, but Ed was definitely one of those people. If you're not familiar with Ed Bengat, um, as, as a lettering artist, you should really, uh, acquaint yourself. You should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. Um, but, uh, he, uh, as I mentioned before, he was, he was just really kind. He was really open. And I wonder if... The... Can you tell us a little bit of what was, uh, what was that like? Like, uh... Tell us like the first encounter. I want to, I want to dig deeper into that anecdote uh, of like meeting him and, um, you know, w what was that like? Did you have meetings or conversations with him or? Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if I remember the specifics of the, f the first mm -hmm. time that I got in touch with him. Um, I was, I was intimidated because of, of, you know, who he was and, and really continues to be in, in, um, uh, in, in contemporary lettering, uh, and his role. So I was, I was definitely intimidated and he had a very gruff demeanor that until he warmed up to you or you sort of got past it, um, he's very, 
super friendly, super amicable, but he, for me, he, he was a little intimidating because he was, spoke very, in a very straightforward sort of way. He didn't, you know, mince words or anything. And, uh, he had this great, great New York accent. And, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's crazy because anytime I cannot think of him without thinking of, about the way that he spoke and, and I actually gave, he and I gave a presentation and, um, I, I think it was part of the, 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 I think it was part of the TDC and the type directors club. And I talked to his wife before we, 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 we went on stage and we, we gave two independent um, presentations, but we contributed to, to each other's. And I, I, I talked to his wife, Elisa, and I said, I I want to share this story, but it, it involves me basically doing it an, an impersonation of Ed. How do you think that's going to go over? Because I, I felt weird asking him. I probably felt weirder just having the idea that I'm going to impersonate this guy on stage. But um, I had known him for a number of years, and I said, you know, for me, it's kind of important for this story. And she said, oh, he's going to be fine. He'll love it. And, and it, was, it was fine. But... If you've met him or heard him speak, his voice is just, I think, a huge, it was a huge part of his personality. And he was just very straightforward. And he would, he would share all kinds of things about his life. Um, we were speaking earlier before about some of your guests and how, how um, re- revealing they were and how open they were during, during your conversations and um, sharing many points about their personal life or just, you know, their... Uh, their their general perspective toward the world and beyond lettering and design, and he would do that. He would he would pepper in these like anecdotes, and I remember one of them. He said, uh, uh, "He said Kenny because he called me Kenny. Kenny. I didn't invite him to. He just decided. You know, there are some people who are just like you're a Kenny, and I'm like okay. Uh, and he said, Kenny, do you know what a schmuck is?" I, I wait. What? What? Are, what are we talking about? I thought we were talking about a letter. Do you know what a schmuck is? And I said, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I have a feeling you're gonna, get, you're gonna tell me something I didn't know. He said, a schmuck is someone who gets out of the shower to pee. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, good to know, Ed. <laughs> He would, Some of the teachings, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the deep wisdom of, of the lettering <laughs> masters. <laughs> so he would share, he would just share all, you know, a, a really anything that came to mind. And he was, uh, he was just so terrific. But he, he also, and this is one thing I learned, and I suppose this goes back to our conversation about the things that, that I would share with someone who's getting into lettering. And I would say, honestly, getting into any creative d- endeavor where there's some collaboration or um, you're working with other people. Uh, I had drawn a logo and I, I forget what it was exactly now. And it, it was a, um, it was a piece of script <clears throat> and we were talking and I was showing this and I was so proud of it, you know, and I thought I, I'm, Maybe I was a little, maybe I was a little too proud. Maybe I thought I was showing off for him or something. I don't know. I wanted him to be proud of me. Um, and he just, he said, this is terrible. Mm. And it, it, 
it was it was tough. It was tough hearing that uh, mm. because here's someone who I looked up to. We had formed a friendship by this time, and he was so just raw and straightforward, and he he didn't hold back, and my heart sunk. It it mm. it, it was it was kind of devastating. Um, and I, I needed to like have this moment where I'm like, what do I, what do I do with this? You know, we're in the kitchen of his house. He, you know, and, and we're just, we're having a good time. We're talking about lettering and he tells me this thing stinks. And it just, it, it, it's my heart sunk. And, um, he explained why. And then he said, but you know, I have, I have my opinions and ways of doing things. And I'm very opinionated and, and that's the way I see things, but you're going to have your way of seeing things and mm. understanding how things are done. And it was this kind of moment of tough love, but at the same time demonstrating to me that even though I saw him as my mentor, I wasn't him. And mm. as you mentioned before, we have these people, we, we may want to model our lives after them in some ways, our professional lives. But we are not them and we won't be them. And that's a great thing. That's, that's fantastic. That means that there's so much diversity and possibility in, in the practice of lettering that I don't have to worry about being an Ed Benguet. And, yeah. you know, in a sense, it was like, it was very freeing. And, and, you know, the next thing I know, he's like, hey, I'm going to order some Italian food. What do you want? The pizza's really good. I usually get a salad. It's Okay. And then suddenly it just shifted. And, and the biggest thing that I learned was the, the lettering is not me either. Like, I, mm. I, I, I don't need to, you know, get too, uh, I don't know, uh, philosophical or too meta about this whole thing. But um, he could talk about lettering in a really dispassionate way. He could mm. talk about it in a, a very objective way. Maybe at least as objectively as you could. And for me, that was a revelation. I was like, wow, yeah, I'm not that lettering. He's not talking about me. Yeah. He's talking about the decision-making behind it or some of the choices and how it affects um, these, these things that allow us to talk about lettering in, a, in an objective way. It's as personal as it is, mm. it's still this, you know, in this case, it's this commercial endeavor You've got a goal that you're trying to achieve. Do the decisions that you make in the process of trying to do that meet that aim? And in his opinion, it didn't for, for certain reasons. And that was, that was another huge thing for me is to, to try to remove myself from, from the process. And I wonder if um, how much other people struggle with that. I'm, I'm, I'm not like fully... I don't know. Do you, do you ever... Do you ever have moments where you just feel, I don't know, just kind of disconnected from, not disconnected from the process, but, but you don't factor yourself or your feelings as part of the process. You are, in one sense, you're a set of hands. These ideas are, are, uh, you know, occurring and let's face it. I mean, we can practice and do all these sorts yeah. of things, but we don't really know how, <laughs> you know, how yeah. these, sometimes these ideas strike us, you know, we, the, you know, the expression like a, a bolt from the blue or you know, out of nowhere, you get this idea. I mean, it's very difficult to explain. Yeah. And, and so, I don't know. I, do you ever find that, that um, you remove yourself personally from a process? Or, 
I mean, maybe it's something I think about things too much. So it maybe, maybe. I, I think, <laughs> I think I appreciate that you, yeah, that you bring that up because I think this is something that many artists out there struggle with. And I personally have struggled with, you know, like we are so attached to our work or our work is such a big part of our identity that it is hard to detach from it. And whenever we get criticized or we don't get enough likes on our work on social media or whatever, this affects us personally. Or when we get uh, client feedback that is not positive, it's hard for us to go ahead and do the changes. As you said before, um, you know, this is at the end of the day, our work is our commercial endeavor. If you're doing this commercially as an artist, um, and in a way, I think it's very healthy to be able to detach yourself from the work and in a way as, as, admit or assume that you are providing a service, uh, right? And you're helping someone tell their story, um, create a, a, a logo for their brand, and you have that skill to make it possible, right? And I love that. I love that among all the points that you mentioned, going back to the first question, um, regarding how do you master skill? You mentioned, okay, identify what your interests are. Um, second, practice. Number three, educate yourself, right? Through books, through workshop, through resources. You also mentioned uh, model or find a model for yourself. And I love that now at, at the end of, of, um, of what you just said, you were mentioning how important it is also to have honest feedback, to have someone who will tell you like, hey, this doesn't look good. I mean, there's ways in which you can improve this. And, you know, I love that. I think that this is a portion that many of us oversee the, the importance of having someone looking at your work and telling you like, hey, you know, there's other ways to do this. And perhaps if you change this or that, it will look better. By the way, you also have done great improvement. You know, you also, you know, you are also finding your own style or whatever Ed told you at that time, right? So, um, or maybe this is your way to do it, right? But I think it's so important not to forget that portion um, of, improving your skills and getting better at something that has to do with, you know, having someone to give you honest feedback. And to be honest with yourself. And yeah, that's, that's really challenging uh, early on. I mean, we've all seen, you know, the terrible, you know, talent shows on TV and people who think they're excellent singers or some other kind of performer. And they're, you know, probably to most people's ears, they're horrible. You know, they're, yeah. And they're lacking an honesty, I think, with themselves. And that's why I think you do need that, that person uh, or <clears throat> some feedback from a group or community or individual that can say, hopefully in a really constructive, helpful way, that like, maybe this isn't your strong point. But you know what I do see? I do see that you're a fantastic communicator. When you describe mm. what you're doing, mm. uh, you can paint a picture uh, incredibly well. And so maybe your strength is perhaps less visual and it's more of a storyteller, which is a, a part of this whole thing. Um, so I think having that, trying to cultivate some honesty with yourself um, and remembering the fact that it's, it's a process. And I don't, I don't want to spoil things for people, but the process doesn't really end. As far as I can tell from my experience, it's a continuing process. It isn't that there's some level, at least as far as I can tell, 
that you achieve and then it's like, oh wow, I figured it all out. It's, there are so, there, there are so many things to learn. That's to yeah. me, that makes it exciting. I understand how that can be a little intimidating, but one thing to remind yourself in respect to this idea of being honest is you, each of us have achieved some level of ability. In comparison to others, we may see differences. That's to be expected. But along, I think, with that level, that ability also comes this, this ability to honestly evaluate your work. And some of that simply comes with skill. And that skill comes with time. And so I know that no one wants to hear practice, practice, practice. When you do that, you're, you're able to then work intuitively. To work intuitively means that you have experience. How can you make choices intuitively or that feel intuitive without having faced something similar before? Mm. The practice allows you to gain that experience and that intuition, a kind of you know, wisdom, I guess you could say, mm. because you can have knowledge and then you can have applied knowledge. So I can, I can know about historical facts of you know, when a particular letter style came into vogue or uh, how it evolved and individuals who were part of this whole process. And that's, that's knowledge. But unless I can apply that, then it's not going to be extremely helpful in my actual lettering practice. So I think being patient, <laughs> um, yeah. understanding that I don't have to figure it out right now. And, and no one does. And as I mentioned yeah. before, it's this, it's this continuing evolution, if you will. Um, and so that's why I think these old adages prevail uh, no matter what industry or what skill you're trying to master is work hard, yeah. be patient, um, being nice is always good, especially in our industry. <laughs> like, you know... Um, you know, generally it's, it's a much, uh, it's a much better experience for everyone. Yeah. If everyone's cool and open and understanding. Um, but I, I, I think you may coming back to this, this idea of advice and, and you had painted, you know, this scenario that what if there's someone who's interested in lettering and they want to pursue that. Another thing that I would say to, to keep in mind, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but, um, is to, to recognize the fact that for many people, they may have started with one interest and they wind up in another career path. Mm. And if we, if we think about our experiences that we have, whether if it's pursuing lettering as these moments of discovery, right, that, mm. that build on top of one another, it's very hard to predict how that path is actually going to go. In fact, mm. I'm not convinced anyone can. You can be extremely determined and say, this is the goal I want to achieve. This is what I'm going to do. I can paint this, you know, or create this roadmap. But I think when reality kicks in, um, you can be steered down detours and other avenues, uh, just to continue with the map metaphor, um, that lead you somewhere else. I didn't, I went to school thinking, you know, when I grew up, my parents were like, what have you thought about as a career? And I said, I, I worked in a paint factory during the summers uh, in order to earn money to, to pay for school. My parents were extremely um, encouraging. 
They were helpful as, as best as they could be. They did everything they, good, they could to help create any opportunities they could so that I could follow my interests. And they noticed in me this, you know, this proclivity toward art and they really encouraged it. And I'm very thankful for that. Uh, in the summer, I worked at a paint factory. My dad worked at the paint factory. They had this program. Hey, if kids are going on to higher education, they can work in the paint factory, make good money, join a union, um, you know, inhale some, you know, potentially dangerous fumes that'll haunt you later in your life, uh, <laughs> health-wise. But it it allowed me to, you know, to pay for school and do that. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, when I my objective when I got to school was I'm going to study art. I don't know, I don't know what that means past that point. And fortunately, the program I went to was a four-year program. Uh, the first year, you had to take these uh, these um, core curriculum uh, courses, is what they they called them. And uh, you didn't really have a choice. And this forced you to essentially have some experience in different uh, fields of art. And then you could take electives and you didn't choose a mass, uh, you didn't choose your, um, uh, your focus until your junior year. So you already had two years of experience. And at that time I thought I want to pursue graphic design. It, I, you know, as a kid, I would use my mom's typewriter to, to, you know, make phony business cards and letterheads for these non-existent companies. And, and I continued to do that in high school. Um, so I was drawn to graphic design, even though I was, I didn't really know. I just, there was an element of it for whatever reason that attracted me. Um, but when I, when I was in school, I thought I, I'm going to be a graphic designer and my, uh, the, the, the first two full-time jobs I had, I played the role, I suppose, of what people would define as sort of a, a traditional graphic designer. We did some logo work, you did layouts, uh, you know, it, a little multidisciplinary, but still within squarely within graphic design. And I thought that's what I'm going to do. Um, but through a series of, of, of moments and events that I didn't author and I couldn't have predicted, it led me toward illustration and lettering and then primarily to lettering, uh, and, and typeface design. But I couldn't have, I couldn't have, plotted that, that roadmap. Um, and I, I hear a lot of stories from other people. Um, you know, you, you have, uh, I've seen your post, you share moments from your childhood and your drawing, and I would presume you had maybe aspirations to be an artist. Do you feel, did you ever think you were going to, you know, go to a program in Holland for typeface design for a year? I mean, in fact, I, I actually, it's funny that you that you mentioned that because I actually envy some some artists out <clears throat> sorry some artists out there and, and some of the guests that I have had in the podcast who speak about like when I was drawing from from the age of two and I always had this interest for drawing and doing stuff and um, you know my mom was an artist and she told me this and that I I don't feel I had that kind of nurturing um, growing up. And my my own career was also very surprising to me. And I can so much relate to what you say. Like, I never picture myself, you know, what I, I'm also um, trained as a graphic designer and I work almost a decade as a, as a graphic designer and an art director before I went into lettering. And I, you know, I could have never envisioned 
going into lettering when when I started um, uh, when I started my my uh, my studies in graphic design. I, I I didn't even know that there was something called lettering out there. So um, so I think I think I can totally relate to what you say that you know in a way you have to keep your mind open to what the process um, shows you or what are the ways or what are the venues that open up why you do things and you try out different things in your career right um, and I think that you know as I hear in your in your case you went into into art school because you had certain interests in that and then from that you went into the 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 kind of interest you had in, in lettering and you started doing lettering on, on, on the side or on your free time. And then things led, you know, one thing led to the other. It's not like you had one clear map of what you wanted to do. Otherwise, you, you know, it would be really easy um, and perhaps really boring as well, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think, I think that's, that's also, I think is really refreshing for those that are listening and are, perhaps starting right now in the industry with whatever skill that they're um, that they are working with, whether that is illustration or lettering. Uh, I think that is really refreshing um, because for, you know, when you're studying, you're wondering, you know, what, what is the roadmap? What are, in which direction should I go? And I think that is, is really empowering to, to let people know that you will figure it out also along the way. It's not something that you figure out upfront and then you go do it. It's something that you figure out as you as you take action. And with every new thing that you do, every new action or step that you make, you will you will have insights and then you will have information to make the next step, right? Yeah, absolutely. You're you're thank you. You're proving my point. <laughs> <laughs> Up until now we have been speaking about you know, how, how one master a skill, right? And I get this question often, which I was, I was recording a solo episode for this podcast about this uh, today. And I would love to have your input um, in that matter. When do you think one is ready to make a living with their skills? Um, because I get this question from a lot of students. Um, and I know that many of our listeners are interested in this. You know, I, I know that when you're starting with a certain craft you are putting in a lot of work and you 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 start seeing progress you see that your work is improving you know considering that you are putting in the work and the time and you are doing all of the things that you have shared with us practicing educating yourself um having someone to guide guide you and having someone to give you feedback but at some point when you reach a certain level you start wondering hey how how can i turn this hobby or these two hours a day that I dedicate to getting better at this, how can I turn this into my full-time job? Or how can I turn these two hours into my entire day? You know, because I love, I really enjoy doing this. How can I extend or how can I maximize this, right? And, and this is where other artists are or other, um, yeah, other artists or other people who are interested in a certain craft start wondering, okay, when am I ready to go from amateur to pro, right? So I want to ask you, when do you think that that is, that is a good moment for someone to start uh, considering that? And when, what are the cues that they have to look for uh, to say like, okay, now I, I can do this? 
that's a terrific question. And it's something uh, I've been asked the, the same question. If I were to be completely honest and look at my own career as, as an example, uh, I probably, in hindsight now, I have a certain number of years of experience and um, I can see the improvement in my own practice uh, as yeah. compared to what I did 25, 30, 30 years ago. So I like to think it's a pretty big difference. Yeah. If I were to give myself that advice, um, it's very tempting for me to say, you didn't have any business starting professionally when you did. You just weren't good mm. enough. But I'm mm. measuring my past self from my current standard and from my current mm. understanding and mm. knowledge. Um, but that probably would be bad advice for my past mm. self. Um, yeah. Because I think I, I, I have... I have to admit, I've gone back and forth about this, this very mm. question. And um, I think uh, when I did gain a little bit more experience and then I looked at my past work and I thought that it, it wasn't of a very high quality and that I probably mm. you know, didn't have any business teaching or, uh, or working yeah. professionally within lettering, um, there was a time when I thought, that I, that other people perhaps like students, you know, people who are newer to the profession, that they should take their time. They should resist sharing so much because maybe it's not of a high quality and someone may, may be confused about that or, uh, could kind of muddy the waters in terms of like, okay, well, what is, uh, what is good versus, you know, mm. what is something that perhaps isn't, you know, quite to that level. But I think that's probably bad advice right now because if I gave myself that advice, I would have never taken the opportunity to kind of flounder through this, uh, my mm. early experiences and given myself those opportunities to genuinely improve in my practice. So, I mean, technically speaking, if you can make money doing what you do, you're a professional. <laughs> right? Mm, yeah. I mean, it, and you when is it time for someone, uh, you know, to, to begin their career? You know, in some ways you could say when, well, when someone's prepared to pay you. Um, yeah. But my, my, my advice would be to try to keep that in perspective, even though you may not have that perspective yet, because if you're just starting out, you lack that experience and that skill um, yeah. to really evaluate your work, I think, in a, in, a, in a really effective or successful way. So it is time also, we mentioned mentors before and people who are honest with us, is I think it's a time to lean on them as well, um, mm. especially if you have a connection, say, within the industry who can say, mm. yeah, you, you can absolutely do this. Um, mm. Or, you know, you may want to consider this route, taking a little bit more time Perhaps it's, you know, if you can, if you have a day job, uh, if you can kind of hustle on the side, um, mm. get work, which really, honestly, I would look at as just an opportunity to practice. Being paid, extremely important. I don't want to gloss over that. But yeah. looking at those as opportunities to learn, to begin to build a portfolio, uh, and then being open to those opportunities where maybe there is a time to take a leap or 
um, taking a very, in some ways, a much more traditional approach to it and going out there, applying for for jobs. Um, uh, When I left school, uh, one of the jobs I had was um, working at a a firm that did a lot of uh, uh, sports branding. And yeah. I really wanted to do more illustration and lettering, and it was it was perfect for me. Even though the the subject matter wasn't dear to me, it, was, it wasn't something that I was really motivated to to letter because of the subject matter. But it gave me an opportunity to illustrate and to letter. And those the people, um, my employer at the time, trusted me enough to to give yeah. me that opportunity. So. Another part of that equation is putting yourself out there um, and looking for those opportunities. You know, there are so many ways to this network is kind of a sleazy word sometimes because it sounds like, you know, you're just out to make a connection just to benefit yourself. But like make friends with people and and uh, yeah. reach out to people who are in that industry. And um, sometimes it's not always always possible, you know, for someone to mentor mentor you personally. But um, uh, but. But that's an important, I think that's an important part of the equation as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, what, kind, what kind of advice do you typically um, give Well, people? I mean, I, I'm, 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 I, I agree with you 100%. I think that you, you touch on some of the things that I consider very important. Um, you, you mentioned building a portfolio, which I think, I think that as an artist or designer, I think, you know, it all comes down to developing a certain confidence to really step up and say like, okay, I'm going to start charging for this work. And I think as, as, a, as if you, if you focus on what you can control, which is your work and your output as a, as an artist is already a big plus. Um, so focusing on developing a portfolio and being able to look at your portfolio and say like, Hey, look, I have, you know, I have a good um, portfolio of work. I, ca- I can step up and, and go, um, go find clients and go charge for my work. Um, and I think also something that you mentioned, which also I think has to do with developing that confidence, is to have someone giving you that courage or giving you that, that uh, positive or negative feedback sometimes, right? And I, I, I know that for a fact because... In, within my academy, we, we also have this coaching program for lettering artists and illustrators. And I think that one of the biggest takeaways that, that those who go through that program have is that they leave the program with, with courage or with, with, this, uh, with self-confidence. I think the, the major feedback that I have gotten from that program or for, from the members of the program is that they feel that everything is possible. You know, and they feel that, you know, now I have confidence in my skills and in what I can do and I can focus more on um, on going for it. Right. And I think that what you mentioned has to do with that, with, you know, building a portfolio, developing that confidence through doing great work, which is, I think, uh, what artists should aim for to really you know, to, to develop that superpower that has to do with your work. Um, and then, of course, finding people who, is, who are pushing you forward, right? Because you can also be around people who are just talking you out of that idea. Um, and I think something that was, just to wrap up this, this um, 
this concept, something that was important for me in the very beginning is that I started speaking to other people about what I was doing. I was, um, I was introducing myself as a lettering artist. I was talking to other people about my work, uh, even even though I was just starting with my my my, um, my business in lettering. But I think also you putting yourself in that position, um, I think it can be helpful in terms of making people see you as that person, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, and, and yeah. I was going to say just. Um, I, I, I couldn't help but think about my own experience in university when you were describing putting together a portfolio. The program that I went through the final year um, is a focus on putting together a portfolio, a mm. cohesive portfolio that represents not only your, your talents or your vision, but also what you want to do, making sure that mm. those pieces are the kinds of work that you want. So I went through a very, I would say at the time, a very traditional program. Literally at the end of the program, I had a physical portfolio. I still have it, it's, it's in my basement. That's, that's how much I think of it right now, but, but it's probably five to six inches thick and it's gotta be, uh, I don't know, the boards are probably, you'll have to do the metric conversion, but, uh, <laughs> An enormous portfolio to the point where I would, I would literally, I'm not exaggerating, get calluses on my hands because at the time the internet was still more of like a fledgling type of thing. And so most of the connections that people were making were in person. And so studios in New York City had portfolio drop-off days. So you would literally, for me, uh, I was living in, I guess I was living in Philadelphia at the time. So I would get on the train go an hour and a half to New York City, literally lug this, schlep this enormous portfolio, ridiculously heavy, because it was very traditional. It had all the illustrate or the museum board and then uh, physical, um, uh, we didn't, much of it weren't even digital printouts. We had to assemble it a lot by cut paper and all this sort of stuff and do rub down letters, ancient techniques. Um, <laughs> but we would drag it around to the various studios where we hoped to get a job. And they would, these studios, you'd call in advance, ask when the drop-off was. They would tell you the day, tell you the time period, drop it off at 11, pick it up at 1. You go to another studio, the drop-off there is at 3, you pick it up at 5. And you oh just God. make your way around the city this way. And... But you really had to want it. Oh my goodness! It was the <laughs> that was that was the biggest filter. It was right? just how it worked, and you just accepted it. It was like okay. But the program that I went to had a lot of alumni who had established studios in New York City and 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 hmm. uh, around uh, the U.S. And so they already had a network. Um, mm. And in fact, my first job, I was hired by alumni of the university that I attended. So. Mm. Um, of the art school that I attended. So, you know, making those connections, I know it works a little bit differently now, but the concept is really the same. Um, yeah. The concept is the same, having mentors, having them help you develop, uh, say, a portfolio, making connections in a really genuine way and mm. um, being patient. But this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of an organic process. We can try to author it as much as we want, but it's going to write itself in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's... I think my experience, although, is, 
different from probably most people's today. Um, like you said, you really had to want it. I don't want to say that it's easier today because I don't really think that it's yeah. easier necessarily. Mm. I think you have fewer calluses on your hand and you don't have to, mm. you know, um, drag an enormous portfolio around Manhattan. But, yeah. um, but, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's a, a similar, similar situation, similar situation today. It is just, um, putting that work in, uh, making those connections, getting your work in front of people and showing work mm. that you want to do. Um, mm. a lot of students, uh, even when I was in school, they would do a freelance gig, a, you know, a paying freelance gig and they would have a printed piece, but the printed piece might've been like really kind of just a rank and file type of design, not very exciting, not really demonstrating uh, really your capabilities or even what you want to do. But they would get so excited of that. Well, but it's printed. It's like an actual genuine real printed project. And the teacher would yeah. say, don't put it in your portfolio because it doesn't, doesn't represent your skills, mm. doesn't represent essentially where you see yourself going, what you can bring to a creative studio show the work that you want to do. And I think that's a, that's a huge thing is, is it's very easy to get sidetracked by something you think you ought to show. Um, and especially yeah. today, lettering artists are, aren't just simply commercial lettering artists there. Mm. I design logos. I do advertising lettering. I'll paint a wall mural. You know, I'll, you know, mm. they're very, very, as compared to say commercial lettering artists of, you know, from a number of decades ago, varied in their skills. And if you want to do that and you find that fulfilling and, and, and how you want to pursue your career, do it, but you don't have to do all those things. Yeah. Uh, and I think that goes back to identifying your interests and abilities and see where that overlaps and trying to find the vocation somewhere in there. So you mentioned how important it is to build that portfolio of work that really reflects the kind of work that you want to do. And I think this is a perfect segue with, to another topic that I wanted to touch on today, which has to do with how do you find, you know, once you decide to take the leap or to, to do the transition from amateur to pro, how do you start finding those jobs, right? And, and I wonder, in your experience, how was it for you to find, or how were some of the strategies that worked to find client work? Where were some of the, and this is something, this is a recurrent question here on the podcast, because I'm always curious about how, how do you find jobs and how do you, how do artists um, get dream assignments, right? So I, I would, and I, I'm sure you had many sources of, jobs coming towards you, right? So the different ways in which uh, assignments came your way. Uh, but if you perhaps can name some of the things that you have done um, in the past that were very effective for you in terms of getting that assignment or reaching out to that client and, and turning that into a customer. Um, can you talk to some of those experiences? I don't know if I'm going to be the best person to talk to, <laughs> to talk yeah. about this. So as I mentioned before, my my education was traditional in the sense that at that time, that's how essentially design programs operated. And mm. the the typical pathway in terms of one's career as a designer 
um, or even a letterer was also what I would say is a little more traditional in the sense that it might not be reflected in the way that people um, work today. So when I started, I, as I described this process of, of um, um, looking for work, I wasn't looking for freelance work. I was going mm. to studios with the intention of, of being employed at the studio. And that's pretty much my, how my career has gone. So mm. I haven't really been in a position to um, go out and fish for work and that sort of thing. Because I've always been part of a studio where that was typically already in place. Um, and so there were clients and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I think in terms of uh, there are so many possibilities now to reach out to individuals mm. um, to make those connections. I think uh, people are going to have probably most listeners will have a better idea of, of how to do that than I. Um, as far as some of the work that I've personally gotten more excited about um i i've i've had the you know the good fortune to be able to work on projects that i would consider high profile and and that sort mm. of thing um for me it's all about the lettering and mm. i i i realize that you know maybe it sounds like i'm you know speaking from this position where i, I take it for granted i don't i don't take it for granted um but i have to confess that for me, it's about it's about the lettering, it's about the the the, the, the project, uh, and that's just the truth. Because I genuinely yeah. enjoy the process. I yeah. see the process as personally enriching, because mm. usually I have to do things like I have to do research, and mm. so at, with with every client, no matter who it is, big or small, whatever the market is. Uh, you have to have a certain awareness of how you're going to meet that client's needs. And that means you have to inform yourself as, as much as possible. This is my yeah. personal experience. And so um, for me, it's, it's, a, it's about the lettering. So although I, I have had the good fortune of being in a situation where those clients were coming through the door, as far as mm -hmm. like personal projects, ones I'm I get really excited about are ones that just have a like a great story to them or um th there's a case that uh someone just messaged me i think it was 2021 and uh it was an old school graffiti guy and mm. for he wrote different names i think he's most known for writing trike so he was writing in new york city in the 70s and 80s and he hits me up and he's like, hey, uh, me and a couple friends are putting together this youth basketball program. It's totally nonprofit. We're basically seeing that the kids who are affected by the pandemic, they just, yeah. they don't have an outlet because those things were shut down and they weren't, they hadn't rebooted yet. And so we want to give these kids basically a tournament, engage the kids, um, give them those opportunities back that were taken from them in a lot of ways. So the schools hadn't returned to competitive sports in the area. This is in the Bronx. And so they decided, uh, his name's Turk. Turk decided that he and two school friends who were, uh, had long um, local history. Turk actually played college basketball, Division One, I, I think, mm. in the U.S. 
kind of a big deal for college basketball. And um, he and his friends said, you know, we're going to do this nonprofit. We're going to get these kids on the court. We're going to have fun. We're going to do a tournament over the summer and get these kids reengaged in what something they love. And so he hits me up and he's like, you want to be part of this? And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I just like to me, the the um, you know, what he was doing, it just mm. I felt that I was really important. I am a. I'm a dad watching my kids being affected, not not being able to engage with their friends to do the things that they were doing, you know, their lives completely changing. So I yeah. I had a front row seat to that. And uh, yeah. I thought this 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 is terrific. I was like, yeah, let me let me help, you know. Um and so it's a great story. And then he then he and he's like, Oh, by the way, I'm I'm you know, then he tells me, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an old school graffiti writer. And I find out he's just this legend. And I'm like, that just made the story cooler. Cause then <laughs> we're, we're like texting and messaging and stuff. And, um, you know, sharing pictures of all this, you know, his graffiti that he was writing back in the day. And, um, and, uh, it, it was just, it was a great experience. And so those are the things, you know, um, as far as, you know, the work, we're coming in. I mean, I do all my professional stuff um, through the studio, but um, I look at those opportunities as, as, you know, ways to connect with people, to be involved with these projects, these, you know, mm. that I find are going to be fun or um, help someone out. And, um, but I look at them also as opportunities to practice in a sense. I, yeah. I am going to draw letters anyway. Yeah. I, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love what you say that it's all about the lettering because I think that oftentimes you, or I oftentimes hear lettering artists thinking like, hey, I, I, you know, I want to get that dream client or I want to work for Nike or Adidas. And I know always name these two brands because they are the ones coming up more often. Um, and they mentioned this as a mean of like when I get to do work for those brands or those big, those big clients, I will get to do great work. And I think that it's, it's great that you mentioned that you can do great work, great lettering for the bakery next door. And, you know, it's all about having that great result and that great piece of work. And you can do it either way to, for a big client and for a small client. So I, I find that concept really refreshing. And can I want to change gears before we wrap up this episode and speak a little bit about the, the ups and downs of, of a creative career, right? Um, so I want to talk about what were some of the down points that you experienced throughout your career? Um, things were, you know, moments where you had to make a tough decision or move things around or rethink the way you were doing things. Just to give you an example, with my first child, for instance, I thought, okay, I need to hire help in the studio. And this is, this is where I made my first hire in my studio. With my second child, I thought, okay, I have to rethink the amount of traveling that I'm doing right now because this is unsustainable. Uh, so then there was this moment where COVID hit and that, that was another moment where I had to rethink, okay, what, what is the thing that we, are, that we are leaving out in the studio? What are the things that we are doing next? So... Will you, will you speak a little bit about this, about some of those, uh, ho what these moments were for you and what are some of the things that you have changed throughout your career? Well, I definitely 
can sympathize with the having a kid. Maybe maybe not like personally <laughs> having a child, but having a child yeah. with my wife. Um, uh, you 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 have to. In my experience, you have to be prepared to adapt, and it sounds like you learned the mm. same lesson. Uh, for me, it was um, accepting the fact that schedules were we're, we're gonna mm. we're gonna shift. Finding time to not only be a parent <laughs> and yeah. and um, and continue to you know connect with your spouse and and all those wonderful things, but also sort of fitting your career in there. And uh, for me, it involved just. Um, a lot of rethinking, say scheduling, for example, and finding out ways mm. to do that, and and accepting the fact that there were going to be nights that I was working. Um, oh yeah. And it and and in those moments, and I think we've all all had them to some degree or another. Um, it's a a matter of acceptance, not in the sense that that um, okay, everything has changed, or um, you know that that. Uh, this is how it's going to be, but rather doing your best to sort of pivot in those moments and adapt to the situation. Mm. Um, for me, I faced a lot of, I guess you'd call them more personal or, I don't know, in, internal sort of struggles in terms of the way that I either viewed my work or recognized as if I kind of like mm. stepped beside myself or outside myself and recognized my own attitudes toward my work. And I, yeah. I don't know the textbook definition of a perfectionist, but the idea of, um, of that there's a state of perfection, right? That there is, uh, there is a perfect solution or a best solution and that I had to do what I needed to do in order to achieve that. And mm-hmm. what I've come to realize over time, and this, this has helped me to kind of overcome this what I would call a hurdle in my own career, my own life, is mm. appreciating the fact and coming to the realization that I'm not convinced there is a perfect. I'm not convinced mm. there is a best solution. I think we can argue objectively in many ways for one solution being better than another. I think we can mm. put forth good arguments for that. But I'm not so convinced that there's only one solution or there's some kind of state of perfection. And just to give you an example, um, I had uh, many, many years ago, it was like 20 years ago, I drew a logo, um, just a a pro bono thing for uh, Robothon. So Mm -hmm. Robothon is a semi-regularly occurring... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> conference uh, that deals with more the, the technical side of uh, font uh, manufacturing production. And um, the organizers, uh, they don't, I don't even think they expect to turn a profit. I, I think if they break even. <laughs> I don't think so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, so there was this event and uh, I had drawn a logo and I was, and I was I was super happy with it, and um, the the event never happened. It got canceled, um, mm. and so this is twenty years ago. This is twenty years ago, and then one of the organizers, Eric von Blockland, who is 
one of your old instructors at the Royal yeah. Academy when you were studying type design yeah. in, in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, he said, hey, I'd love, to, um, I'd love to use this. We plan on having an event, a conference in 2023. Hey, yeah. can we just recycle this basically? Hmm. I go and I look at this piece that 20 years ago I, I thought was the chef's kiss. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, 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 of lettering and my accomplishments at that time. And I thought to myself, there's no way in hell I can let this guy reap, like print this thing or, you know, <laughs> on t-shirts no, and swag no, no, and all no. this stuff. <laughs> and, um, and I realized that, and this illustrated to me like very clearly that our sort of our perspective or the way we look at our work is, I mean, it's kind of relative, right? Yeah. Uh, it's relative to our ability at the time, our experience at mm -hmm. the time. And we may have one opinion that is guaranteed to change over time if there's anything I've learned. And so yeah. um, that was actually, um, it, it was a good lesson for me in the sense mm -hmm. that what I thought was, you know, this kind of, kind of, uh, acme or, you know, sort of like, a, a achievement that it was, um, it was my attitude then was really relative to my ability to, to evaluate that work. Yeah. I, it doesn't, now it doesn't necessarily make it bad. It's just, I have a, you know, I have a different, maybe I guess I, I have a different standard or just have different ideas And, um, so, uh, this planned event for 2023 was canceled too. So <laughs> I think the whole thing was just cursed, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I, I could see the mistakes that I made at the time, which I think mm -hmm. were valid. And I think I could put forth good reasons, objectively speaking to why I, uh, I think the logo could be improved, but it, it was the best I guess I could do at the time. Um, but that's, you know, for me to accept that that's going to change also illustrated to me that, you know, that maybe there is no yeah. perfect or best or, and then it's completely, we can say objective, but it's completely going to be, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's, uh, as they, as they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, you know, someone else may, may look at it and think it's fine or think it's, you know, awful. Um, but, uh, mm. yeah, the getting over this, I, this kind of idea of perfection and that I should strive for perfection. I think I should strive for, this is something I learned from Doyle Young and his, his opinion was that we should concern ourselves with making something good over making something novel, something that mm. we think is kind of unique or groundbreaking or experimental. He said, yeah. we would serve ourselves a lot better as lettering artists if we just focused on making something good. And so, um, and this is another thing I learned from, from my friend, Ben Keel, um, uh, shout out to X, XYZ type company. Um, but he yeah. would always remind me that don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Basically yeah. get out of your own way. Mm. It's good. It, it serves the purpose. And this has led me to many of the ideas that I now share with my students, because when you're teaching, 
um, and this goes back to kind of, I guess, that hurdle or the, that, the difficulty of having some internal sort of conflict in terms of the way that you, you look and think about your work, is that teaching really forced me to consider, could I talk about work objectively? Because when I first started mm. to teach, probably I was way too young, getting back to an earlier point in our conversation, I probably had no business teaching, but I did question, <laughs> who am I to give an opinion about work if I can't back it up with some, some reasoning, some type of logic, some tool that the student can use and benefit from. If I'm just giving my opinion and I don't back that up, reinforce it in some way, um, especially in such a way that they can also learn from it and apply it themselves, then I'm just, I'm just giving an, an opinion. And so that, was, yeah. that really forced me to... Uh, look at work and try to basically figure out some type of metric or language or something that I could equip the students with so they could evaluate their work. So I had to look at the way that I created lettering, the decisions that I made, and almost deconstruct that so that I could give the students something, give them some tools uh, to use. And so... I, I realized that we could make good arguments for a piece of lettering being conceptually strong in terms of how it relates to uh, that thing it represents, you know, whether it's a person, a yeah. product, a brand, whatever it may be. Um, and also look at it in terms of its aesthetics. Um, you know, does it stand out from, say, uh, uh, competitors in the marketplace? Does it have mm. a voice that is distinct? And then also there are practical considerations. Does this thing actually work in the way that we want it to, right? So Mm. a lot of times, as you know, the application of logos or a piece of lettering is dependent upon environment and different production methods. So there's going to have to be some kind of practical, you know, utility to the mark. And it put, it put me down this, this course of not only forcing me to face my own I guess insecurities, right? About mm. um, about lacking confidence. You talked about confidence earlier. Mm. Being confident about your decision making, being able to, yeah. I guess, find some to validate it. Um, but as a teacher, that that provided another level, which was how do I make that accessible? How do I provide this as something that is, you know, a, a perspective that a student can use? Some tools, in a sense that the student can use. So it, it had this other level, but I actually think that being confronted with that, especially in the context of teaching forced me to, to face those, those insecurities or those, um, that lack of confidence, um, head on because, you know, I had someone, I was accountable to students. And so that was, I mean, for me, that was, you know, you asked about turning points in career and difficulties. I mean, for me, it was um, that that continues to be something that that drives me. And uh, the flip side of that is I've also come to the conclusion that as an instructor, I don't have to have all the answers. Yeah, I don't have to have all the answers. And I'm I, I try to say it uh, as least often as possible, but I'm becoming more comfortable with saying I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Um, that's okay. 
maybe one of my students knows, right? And just being yeah. open to that. I don't know everything. Um, yeah. I understand. I think there's a level of uh, expertise that I'm expected to have, but I don't have to have all the answers. And this feeds back into, in my opinion, one's personal practice where you can, when you encounter those roadblocks, it's okay to say, I don't know what to do here. Mm. But what, what I do, and I would suggest other people do is walk away from it for a moment, a day, if you, if you can, sometimes there are commercial jobs. We, we don't have that luxury. If you can do that, get someone else's opinion, return to it, begin in a different direction and see where that leads you. It may lead you someplace else. It may lead you at a point of like sort of synthesis between, you know, where you started and, and where you're headed. Um, but it's, it's enormously freeing, uh, a little scary, but enormously freeing to say, I'm not sure what to do here, but I'm just going to continue working, have some patience. It goes back to those, goes back to those, you know, early lessons, totally. you know, that we talked about, yeah. what, you know, the rec, you know, the suggestions or recommendations you would give to people just starting out. I don't think yeah. it ever ends, <laughs> you know, I, in yeah. the sense, in the sense that I still have to abide by all of the, all of that advice I'm giving someone else. I have to continue to be, uh, to work hard. I have to continue to be patient. I have to um, allow myself a little bit of room to be maybe led by the process or let the solution come when it does. Or if it doesn't yeah. say, okay, you know, there's another lettering job. We don't have to save the world right here. We don't have to figure it out right here. And, um, that's enormously freeing. And I think it's, I think it's for me much more productive, um, in a, in a mm. real practical sense. This, I think this is a great way of wrapping up the, the show for today. And I think it all goes back to what you mentioned before that you, you learned from Doya Young, which has to do with, you know, make something good, focus on making something good. Um, and when, when you don't know, you just don't know, you will figure it out along the way. And I think this is really refreshing for those that are listening. Um, and for those that are wondering how, how can you learn from Ken Barber, I'm going to add um, the link to his workshops on my uh, on the show notes of this podcast episode. I'm going to also add um, a link to get his book, The Lettering Manual, which is amazing, uh, and you should all get a hand on it. Um, I'm also going to add this to the show notes. And I think, Ken, this is a great way of wrapping up the show. And what I normally do with my guests is to invite them to play a little game oh, no. just to rub it up, oh, no. which is called, which is called finish the sentence. You, so you what didn't I warn me about yeah. this, you didn't warn me about this. This is a total surprise. I thought, Oh, I was, I was nervous coming into this. I haven't spoken publicly or done an interview in like two years. And I was like, Oh, this, I, I think this is going okay. And now we got the surprise. All right. Oh, no. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. So everything was going okay up until yeah. now. So what I what what this basically what this game is uh, basically what I do is to start a sentence and you complete it. OK, oh, are you ready? No. I'm scared. So w one question. Are you still married? Yes, I am. OK, cool. Then I'm going to I'm going to add that one here. Because oh, I love it. See why um, I say that. So, no. <laughs> so let's start. The world would be much better if people were just nicer to one another. 
I'm the best at uh, making things more complicated than they need to be. <laughs> I've never told anyone about the fact that. Oh my gosh. I used to have a concept of lucky underwear. <laughs> oh my God. That, that would make another podcast, <laughs> right? So if I wouldn't be doing this for a living, I would be. Ooh, I, you know, I've often thought I want to be a, uh, like a travel journalist. I think that would be cool. Mm. My wife always, tell, always tells me that. If I just listen to her, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> there has never been a better time to. Oh, let just the people you love know that. Mm. So good. Ken, thank you so much for all the things and the stories that you have shared uh, on this episode today. Where can people find you? Uh, you know, I'm on the I'm on the gram, as the kids say, at uh, at type lettering. You can find out. Uh, I guess you mentioned you're gonna post all sorts of other things, but that's where I um uh, I share about my workshops and my lettering process. I like to show lots of sketches mm. there, and uh, share personal um, personal projects. So yeah, that's probably the best place. And you know, people are people are smart. They figure it all out. You'll find me in those other places. <laughs> I will add all of these links to our show notes. Thank you so much, uh, Ken, for taking the time to talk to us and to share all the insights with our listeners. Uh, any last words that you, want, I, you would like to add? Did I mention it was at type lettering? I, I, I thought I might have just uh, sidestepped that. At yeah, type yeah, lettering. Okay. Um, no, I want to thank you so much for having me. This was really a pleasure. Um, keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I had a blast. Thank you so much. You're the best. Thank you so much and thank you everybody for tuning in today. See you on the next episode of Open Studio. Bye-bye. So this is it. I hope you loved this episode. You can find me, the host of the show, on social networks at Martino Flor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have a question or comments, go to martinaflor.com slash podcast where you can see previous episodes find show notes, and send voice memos with your comments and questions. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. Just go to martinoflor.com slash YouTube to find them. You can, of course, listen to all our episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you loved this episode, subscribe to this podcast. And if you leave us a review, it will help others find us. Thank you all for listening and see you in the next episode of Martina Flores Open Studio. Bye-bye.